turn in your Bible to Mark chapter uh, 9. Mark chapter 9 as we continue our 12 Disciples series. The reason why the Lord pointed me to this particular character study. Uh, we've been going through the Psalms of Asaph, the Psalms of David. And then we started with emphasizing the mission of our church, which is helping people find and follow Jesus. And I thought it'd be a good break to, to, to get out of the trenches of expositional study in the Psalms and kind of have a different style of teaching for a little bit on Wednesday night. And the topic is especially relevant uh, to our church right now as we're uh, talking about our growth steps, what it looks like to find and follow Jesus. And, and this just really ties in great with the idea of that. And so that's, that's where we're at. Um, how many would, would admit tonight that there, there is at least one area of your life, spiritual or unspiritual, that sometimes you struggle staying balanced in. Yeah, all right. So, so I think that that's one of the dangerous tendencies that, that we all share. I was afraid that, that some of y'all wouldn't admit that. I'm glad you admit that. So that, that, that makes my introduction have to be shorter tonight. That's good. Um, I, I was going to have to like set a case for why you are indeed out of balance sometimes, but it looks like you recognize that. So praise the Lord. Um, what I mean by that in particular, though, is we all have this tendency to go to unhealthy extremes. We just do. Uh, uh, this happens sometimes when we diet, right? In, instead of uh, making sustainable changes that, that can last a lifetime, we tend to go to the extreme of starving ourselves so we can get to our ideal weight as quickly as possible, then go right back to junk food. I mean, that's how I do it. It happens sometimes with exercise, too, for, for, the, for the men of the world that, that you know, the, the most you've ever exercised is about a quarter of a mile a day, which is about three trips from your couch to your, your table a day. You, you get this shot of, of physical motivation and you want to just run a marathon 26.2 miles tomorrow. Extreme. Our, our tendency uh, to be extremists, I think, shows up particularly in our perspective sometimes. M meaning, we can only see black and white in certain issues. Like we refuse to recognize any gray area exists. In certain issues that we're passionate about, we don't see any nuance whatsoever. It could be a theological issue, a political issue, a relational issue, a financial issue, a personal decision. All we can see is black and white and we fail to see that there are indeed some issues in life that just aren't black and white. And then, in our extremist mindset, we become stubbornly blind to any argument but our own. Now, I could go on illustrating this tendency in all of us, but you've already raised your hand. You know that, 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 that you tend to be an extremist in one area of life or, or the other. And that's the case with the Apostle John. That's the disciple that we're going to be studying tonight is the disciple John, the Apostle John. Uh, he seemed to struggle, especially in his earlier years of discipleship, with kind of being an extremist. He seemed to, to lack a sense of spiritual equilibrium. Now, now, let me explain what I mean. We know John today as the apostle of love, right? Sometimes we, we call him John the Beloved. But we can't forget that before he was ever known as an apostle of love, he was first named by Jesus a son of thunder. 
Right? We, we, we can't get the idea uh, that, that just because of these random uh, paintings by people of John of, of like this really soft, flimsy, weak man that rested on Jesus' chest, we get this idea that, that, that he, he didn't like the outdoors and, and, and didn't like to get dirty and he was, he was just real flimsy. Of a, he was a rugged fisherman. All right, and I'm going to show you in a few minutes that we have every reason to believe that he was just as thunderous and zealous and passionate and ambitious and competitive as his older brother James, who we studied last week. Jesus didn't call James the son of thunder. He called James and John the sons of thunder. So what was John so thunderous about? Well, he was thunderous and passionate for truth. Truth. And the way he wrote in Scripture is how that part of his personality is revealed to, to the most to us. He, he spoke, if you know John's writings, he spoke, spoke in black and white terms. Absolute terms, certain terms. And he didn't seem to waste any of his time coloring in all the gray areas. In fact, he bent over backwards, especially in his epistles, not to make any of his writing fuzzy or warm. For example, consider this in his gospel. Study with me for a second. Just, just think. Here's what he does in his gospel, the gospel of John. He sets light against darkness, life against death, the kingdom of God against the kingdom of the devil, the children of God against the children of Satan. The judgment of the righteous against the judgment of the wicked. The resurrection of life against the resurrection of damnation. Receiving Christ against rejecting Christ. Fruitfulness against fruitlessness. Obedience against disobedience. And love against hatred. Do you see those absolutes? Do you see those opposites? He understood the necessity of drawing a clear line. And he carries that approach in his epistles. First, second, and third of John. He tells us that we are either walking in the light. Or we're dwelling in darkness, no in between. We're either of God or we're of the world. If we love, we're born of God. If we don't love, we're not born of God. I've told you that for, for 10 years, I struggled with doubting the assurance of my salvation. And while, during that journey, my dad told me, son, just read through the book of 1 John over and over and over. And that's before I really had, I went through hermeneutics class in, in Bible college, which is teaching you how to properly interpret the scripture. And so I would read John's writings in first John. And he said, if you don't love, you're not born of God. Well, I didn't love my brother that much at the time. And, and I'll, he just has no gray area. And so if you don't understand John's perspective, which now I understand John's perspective in first John, first John will not give you assurance of your self, salvation. It'll make you doubt your salvation. And that's just how he wrote. Um, in his second epistle, he, he calls for complete, total separation from all that is false. And he says all these things without qualification, without any softening of the hard lines, without any preface statements. Now, let me say this. There's nothing wrong with this kind of personality. A zeal for truth is praiseworthy and it's needed in our country today and in our churches today. I'm talking about absolute truth. However, if that passion for truth is not balanced by love, it becomes absolutely deadly. 
Because truth without love can give way to judgmentalism and harshness and a lack of compassion for those who don't agree with your version of the truth or God's version of the truth that you hold dear. And that's what we see in the younger years of John's Christian life. He just got out of balance with this idea of truth and love. In fact, I would say that in his younger years, he was one of the most unlikely candidates to be later called the apostle of love. But it's amazing how three years with Jesus transformed his heart. It's amazing that, that, that when you get on the potter's wheel and you let him go to work with you and you say, I surrender to you, take off all the hard, harsh edges from me and, and fill me with your love. It's amazing that when you put yourself in the hand of Jesus Christ, he can transform you from a son of thunder to an apostle of love. Let's take a look at how this happens. We're going to go to Mark chapter 9. Now, let me preface this before I read it because this is the one place in the four Gospels where John acts and speaks all by himself. Usually he's mentioned with Peter and with James. Those three form the inner circle of Jesus among the twelve. In fact, this is the only place in the Gospels where he is shown to speak at all. Go study it. This one time. So it's important in giving us insight into his personality and his character at this time. Look at verse 38 of Mark chapter 9. And John answered him saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us. And we forbade him because he followeth not us. Can you hear his, his tone? God, Jesus, you're going to be proud of me what I did. I saw a guy that was ministering your name, but he's not part of our group. He didn't do it the way you do it. And the way you taught us to do it. And I, I condemned him. I told him to stop. I told him he has no right to minister in the name of Jesus. I forbade him. And so Jesus responded, not with affirmation. Verse 39. But Jesus said, forbid him not. For there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he is not against us is on our part. For he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. So Jesus is attempting to balance John's passion for truth. And he said to him this in essence, John, I appreciate your courage. I, I appreciate your passion for truth. But just because somebody goes about ministry a different way than me doesn't mean they're against me. I don't care if all they're doing is giving out bottles of water to drink. If they're doing it in my name, I can use it and I can find a way to get glory from it. So mind your own business, John. When I get to that section of scripture, I will do more expositional work on it. But this would have been shocking to John. You know why? He only saw things in black and white. To John, you're either for us or you're against us. You're on team Jesus or you're on team Satan. Either you're just like us or you're not of us. But Jesus introduced the idea that in ministry, in how you do ministry, there are some gray areas. And that's okay. We can do what we do 
and stand solidly on why we do it the way we do it, but we don't have to condemn those who do it a little differently than we do. I've got to say, I'll talk about that more later. I'm thankful to have been raised in a ministry under my dad's leadership where he kept the main thing the main thing. And there, there are a lot of battles that he just didn't think were worth fighting in his wisdom. And, and we hear guest preachers that, that come in all the time and compliment the spirit of our church and the spirit of our people. And they love preaching and they're easygoing and they're friendly and they're kind. And there's not this spirit of harshness and legalism. And, and, and all, you understand that that's been led and I, I have inherited a very healthy culture in our church that, that likes to keep the main thing the main thing. And by the way, I hope it always stays that way. Now I'm going to dig more into this in a moment because the majority of the application from this message is going to deal with an overzealous passion for truth detached from love. But let me say this first. It's just as dangerous to have an overzealous passion for love detached from truth. I want you to get this. While truth without love is brutality, and we'll talk about that, love without truth is hypocrisy. It has no character. See, I, I found that many people are just as imbalanced as John was, but in the other direction. I'm talking about good Christian people. They talk a lot about love, and a lot about tolerance, but have a lack of concern for truth. When that happens, what you have is not true deep love. What you have is shallow tolerance. And I've seen many who favor the love side of things in an imbalanced way lead themselves down a dangerous path of, of tolerance that I believe, listen church, is just as destructive as the path of cruelty that those who favor truth go down. So if your love tonight isn't anchored and balanced out by the truth of the word, you will tolerate things and you will buy into things that you as a Bible believer have no business tolerating. You won't be able to say hard no's when you should. You won't be able to take a theological and doctrinal stand when necessary. And you'll be willing to make unbiblical compromises for the sake of getting along. Don't forget that the same Jesus who loved everyone and sought to get along with everyone the best he could was the same Jesus who ran the money changers out of the temple in a rather forceful way. He was the same Jesus who stood up to the religious leaders of the day and called them snakes and vipers. So it's important that, that before we go any further in the message that you need to understand that this balance of truth and love goes both ways. Are you with me? However, being loving, too loving, and too tolerant wasn't John's tendency. And it's probably not most of our tendencies either. John struggled with being so truthful that he was sinfully intolerant and cruel with people. Now I begin to think, how does this play out in our lives? I'm very familiar with the church world, so I'll, I'll talk about it there. And you can use this application maybe in, in your home life in your parenting, uh, in your marriage, in your work life. I know how it shows up in the church world. Being a church like ours that, that really values doctrine and a strong stand on biblical doctrine, being a church 
that is unapologetically Baptist in our beliefs, being a church that, that upholds the absolute authority of Scripture in our lives, we don't take away from it, we don't add to it. If we're not careful, we'd have the tendency to fall out of balance in how we stand for that truth. Right? Did you know that it's possible to have a strong stand with the wrong spirit? And it's possible to have the right position with the wrong disposition. So, so I've seen a lot of Baptist churches that are so confident what they believe, they're mad about it. You ever met anybody like that? And whoever doesn't hold the line right where their church holds the line, whether it be in, in music or dress or ministry philosophy or evangelism techniques, if they're different, then they're wrong. Now that's out of balance. Because not everything in ministry and how we do ministry is black and white. There are a lot of gray areas that are a matter of conscience, Romans 14, where pastors have liberty to lead their congregation as the Lord leads them. So, so our passion for truth, if we're not careful, can sometimes lead us to believe that every theological issue is spelled out in black and white. And we can totally lose a sense of compassion and flexibility with other Christians and other churches. Here's what we need to understand. That is an independent Baptist church. We are independent. We are, not, we, we are not governed by a hierarchy. We are governed by the Lord to do ministry as he leads us by his spirit and through the teaching of scripture. But we need to let other churches have that same liberty. That doesn't mean we have to pretend to agree if we don't. That's a lie. But it also doesn't mean that we get like John and label them as outright heretics either. If they're not preaching another gospel, they're not accursed. So I want our church to, to, to be, continue to be good at minding our own business. And supporting other gospel preaching churches, even in our community and otherwise, who might go about things a little differently, but are still being used by the Lord in kingdom work. We can't put God in a box. He can use people and churches that are different from us to still do a great work for him. The imbalance also shows up in how we view people and treat people within our own church family. I follow this because sometimes we lovers of truth have a sense of impatience with people that we go to church with uh, who don't love and live out the truth just like we do. And you know that our church is to the size now where not everybody's the same. And by the way, that's good. That's what Paul wanted in the church of Ephesus, church at Rome. That's why he had to write Romans 14, by the way, because the gospel has a way of reaching whosoever. If you're really centered on the gospel. But we tend to think as lovers of truth that everyone should be as zealous as we are about righteousness. And if they aren't, then they need to hit an altar. Just remember this church, not everyone grows at the same rate. Everyone's at a different level of sanctification and God will work on them for you. Amen. You don't have to. We lovers of truth, we also hate hypocrisy, don't we? Hypocrisy gets to us in a very deep way. So when we get to know somebody at church enough to see who they really are outside of church, whether that be because we work with them or they're part of our extended family or because you're friends on Facebook, and you saw what they did on Friday night and they come and, and try to worship on Sunday and act like nothing happened. 
and you start seeing two different people, if you're not careful, as a lover of truth, you will get eaten up alive on the inside with a sense of impatience and exasperation and even cruelty toward that person because your love for truth causes you to hate hypocrisy and inconsistency. And eventually that out of balance spirit will come out in unhealthy and hurtful ways, passive aggressive ways. I've also found that lovers of truth, they tend to want issues in the church dealt with in the most serious, quick, public, decisive ways. That's because they, they see things as black and white like John did. They can't notice the nuance in every situation that might cause a pastor or church leadership to handle the situation with more grace or patience than the way they would prefer it to be handled because they just don't know every detail. So to them, if something isn't dealt with swiftly and strongly and with the sword of the spirit, it appears as though the leadership is weak and sweeping things under the rug and it eats at a lover of truth. Kind of like when James or John, remember when I talked about last week, they wanted to deal with the Samaritans who were inhospitable. What was their default way to respond to that? Burn them. No, go read it. We studied it. Jesus, you're going to call down fire from heaven like Elijah did? You didn't seem to rebuke him. Let's get it done. Jesus saw a different option. What was his option? We're going to go to the next town. I love the Samaritans. I'm not going to burn them. I'm not going to fight a battle I don't have to fight. I'm going to err on the side of grace. We'll just go find a hotel in the next place. Somebody will help us. See, lovers of truth need to be tempered and understand that not every situation calls for a swift, strong public response. Sometimes a battle can be avoided by dealing with something slowly and privately and methodically and graciously. Are you with me? And it's not just church where imbalance shows up. That's just the world in which we're at tonight. But imbalance shows up at work. It shows up in your marriage. It shows up in how you deal with your children. It shows up in how you deal with local and national political issues. This inability to see any gray areas, this inability to be patient with those who disagree with you or do things differently than you, this inability to recognize the right time and the right way in which to make a helpful compromise, this inability is deadly to our relationships. It's deadly to our testimony. It's deadly to our ability to influence others for Christ. So how do we fix it? How do we come into the right balance of truth and love? I think there are a lot of ways. The scripture gives us insight on how to come back into balance, whether it's you're, 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 you're out of balance with love, or out of balance with truth, whatever. Um, I think one insight into John's life um, will help us. I, I could give you many. I'm just going to give you one insight. And we've got to look at four verses. Uh, John chapter 13, verse 23. Here's what it says. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples. Now this is John's gospel, so he's writing this. And look what he calls himself. Whom Jesus loved. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. John 20, verse 2. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple... Whom Jesus loved. You can go to other gospels and understand that that other disciple was John. But he referred to himself as the one whom Jesus 
loved. John 21, verse 7. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, saith unto Peter, it is the Lord. John, uh, one more, John 21, 20. Then Peter turneth about, seeing the disciple whom Jesus loved, following. We understand that that disciple was John. John never calls himself by his own name. Instead, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, of course, Jesus loved all his disciples with the same love. He didn't love John more than he loved Peter or James or Andrew or Philip. But it seems like there was a unique way in which the apostle John was gripped by Jesus' love for him. It seems that John, more than any of the other disciples, was in awe of Jesus' love for such a man as himself. It was amazing to the Apostle John that Jesus would love such a man who wanted to burn up the Samaritans, a group of people Jesus really loved. It was amazing to him that Jesus would love such a man who was obsessed with status and position so much so that he sent his mother Salome to ask Jesus if he could have the highest throne in his kingdom. It was amazing to John that Jesus would love such a man that fell asleep while he was supposed to be praying for Jesus in the last hours of his life. John is utterly amazed, completely humbled, that Jesus would let such a sinner rest his head on his chest. And so by calling himself the one whom Jesus loved, John is glorifying Jesus for loving him, even when at times he was so unlovable. Here's what that tells me. The key to becoming more loving is to remind yourself of how much Jesus loves you. Amen. To be humbled overwhelmed and broken by the fact that Jesus would love you like he loves you. That's what John did with every time he referred to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. He was reminding himself to show that same kind of love to others because he knew it was his weakness. I want you to take some time tonight to do some inventory of how Jesus has demonstrated his love for you. I want to do more than sing about it. I want to get specific. So let me help you. He forgives you every time you ask him. Question, why would you hold a grudge towards somebody else? He listens to you even when you make no sense question. Why would you listen to others without empathy, empathy at all? He created you with uniqueness as his personal masterpiece and desires for you with his help to be the best version of yourself. Why would you get overly exasperated when somebody different from you is just being themselves? He invites you, James 1, to ask for wisdom and promises not to chide you or get on to you when you do. Question, why would you get defensive or bothered when somebody asks you an honest question? He allows you liberty 
This is his love. You're not a robot. He allows you liberty to make decisions based on your own conscience in many gray areas of the Christian life. Why would you not give the same liberty to other Christians? He knows you better than you know yourself. And he loves you anyway. Question. Why would you be so critical of others' faults so quickly? Only give them three strikes and they're out. I'll go back to that church, but the moment they... Boy, I'm glad Jesus doesn't treat you like that. You'd be a crispy critter. Jesus was humble enough, Philippians 2, to be obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Humble enough to serve you by dying for you. Question. Why would you be too good to do a menial task for somebody else and then throw a fit if they don't thank you for it? Do you see how this works? When you truly get a glimpse of how Jesus treats you and loves you and is patient with you, it'll start affecting how you treat and love other people. Do you have some some edge about you? Some cruel tendencies about you. Easily exasperated propensities about you. Do you have those about you? If so, you need to stop and take inventory maybe every single morning of how Jesus loves you. When I graduated from Bible college in 2006 and came to this church as the youth pastor and music director, I was a son of thunder. How many remember those days? You're like, I thought you still were. I'm growing. But I was really a son of thunder. I can't believe, Dad, to this day, I look back at some things I said to people. I, I, I cringe when I go back and sometimes read the few first sermons that I preached here and, and thought, wow. I was a fireball. Like a Tiff, did you just laugh? That was kind of smug. She's like, hmm. Been waiting for him to admit that. I really was zealous, though. Sincerely zealous for truth. I mean, I, it, this is going to blow your mind. But when I got back, I was so institutionalized. By, by a Bible college, they have to do things the strictest way possible to, you know, make it feel like boot camp so you're ready to go out into the, the war, you know. But, but I, uh, I remember coming back and we, we projected the words on a screen. Well, back in those days, that was pretty controversial. Like, you need to be using the hymn book if you're really into the old paths, right? Um, and and I, I sat down with my dad and literally said out loud, I'm very uncomfortable with with, you know, using the screens and soundtracks and stuff. I just think we're heading in a direction that's not good. And some of you look at me like, dude, you're crazy. I was. I was a son of thunder. And, and, and so anytime that I would preach, write a sermon, pre- I mean, I preached to sometimes 12 teenagers during Sunday school. Like I was preaching to 1,200 people who were on the brink of going to hell. You know what I mean? Like every one of them were drug addicts. 
and on their way to jail if they don't get their life together. I mean, I'd be, Mike Futhers and Diane, you guys, I don't know how you did this. They were our youth, youth volunteers at the time and had to endure this young man, uh, 21 years old, just, my zeal was outrunning my wisdom. My zeal was outrunning my humility. And, and there were, honestly, just some relational things that I really severed, fragmented because of, of, of just that untempered part of me. And I, I don't know when it, when it changed. I really don't. I, I, I have no idea. I, can't, I tried to think about that this week. Like, like, when did I start realizing that about myself or whatever? I, I can't remember. I just remember that over time, God began to help me to understand that, Tyler, you don't have to compromise truth to be more loving. Like, you can show more love and be just as passionate for the truth. So your passion for truth doesn't have to go down. Your passion for love has to go up. So you can love orthodox. I mean, you, you can be passionate about that which is right. But you need to be just as passionate about shepherding people and loving people and walking patiently and gently and slowly with the sheep that God has given you to oversee. God began to work that in me. And, and, and over time, God has taught me and still teaching me because it's my propensity in unhealthy seasons of life to always default back to the sons of thunder day. So always fix problems by powering up and, and always get louder and more forceful and more defensive. I, I, I still, when I'm unhealthy and, and not under the control of the spirit, I, I, I will think that my forcefulness is the way to lead and to guide people. And don't get me wrong, I really believe leaders lead. If you don't lead, you're not a leader. That, that, that involves confrontation sometimes. That involves clarity and straightforwardness. Maybe bluntness. Some, it does. It really does. If you're not willing to, to speak the truth. And, and, and I, I never want my passion to decrease. I don't want that to decrease. I, I think that's a gift of God to me. Like, I love preaching. I get excited about stuff. I don't need to intentionally be quiet to let you know I love you. I'm not going to do that. I'm still going to be Tyler Prater, who God made me to be. But God has just enlarged my heart. And here, here's the only explanation now that I can come with it. It's nothing that I did because the Bible says in Galatians, love is supernatural. Right? It is a fruit of the Spirit. And so I can't take credit for reading a book on how to be more loving and then I did it. I can't do that. I can't say, oh, I just started praying a lot more and all of a sudden I got more loving. I can't take credit. I just tried to yield myself to the Spirit's control when I recognized somehow inside of me, I am really out of balance. I'm hurting people with, with, with my cruelty and, and shortness of temper and forcefulness. I need to balance that out with love. I'm still not perfect, but, but I feel like God's brought me a long way in that. And, and it's amazing that, that number one, when you realize you have this tendency... It's, it's amazing. That's the first step. When, you, when, you, when, you, when you're not delusional about your weaknesses, you're self-aware. But then after that, you just really yield yourself to the Spirit's control. And you keep reminding yourself and reorienting yourself every day to the way Jesus loves you. When you really center yourself on the love of Jesus, it's, that just humbles you, man. You're more patient with your spouse. More loving with your kids. You're not a compromiser. You're not a compromiser. 
You're just more balanced out. Does that make sense? So I ask myself, if, if that's how I think John came about it, then, then did, did he really get balanced out? And a lot of the way that you can tell is in their future writings. So we go to the epistles, and it's, it's very interesting um, that John's love didn't nullify his passion for truth. It just gave him the balance he needed. It's interesting, check this out, that the word truth in John's writings is, is mentioned or written 45 times. The word love is mentioned or written 80 times. In fact, John's theology is best described today as a theology of love. Now really think about it. He taught that God is love. You know that, that one, right? I learned it in the Christian school growing up. The loving, let us love one another. Love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not, is that wrong? For God is love. God is love. Beloved, let us love one another. First John 4, 7 and 8. It's a theology of love. Hold your applause. God loved the world. John 3, 16. God is loved by Christ. Christ loved his disciples. All men should love Christ and we should love one another. And love is the fulfillment of the law. These are things John wrote. Love was the dominant theme of his writing. Yet his love, get this, never slid into an imbalanced tolerance of anything less than truth. He, re, he remained a thunderous defender of truth and he refused to tolerate lies. And so should you. In fact, he, an entire epistle of his is dedicated to warning a church of false doctrines and lies that were going around that they needed to stand firmly against. So the same John that wrote, For God so loved the world, is the same John that wrote, Love not the world, neither the things of the world. That's a perfect balance. Love the sinner, but love not the sin. Accept the sinner, but do not tolerate the sin. So I would say that he found a place of balance. And God helped him. I want you to evaluate yourself tonight and ask yourself, are you out of balance? In any area of your life when it comes to truth and love. Are you? Be self-aware now. Concentrate on your own heart, your own personality tendencies. Look in these areas of your life towards other people you go to church with, uh, towards leadership decisions at work or at church, towards your spouse sometimes, towards your children sometimes, towards your coworkers sometimes. Listen, if your passion for truth and, and what is right in your position has caused you to be unloving in your disposition, you need to stop tonight and be humbled by God's love for you. And that's the key to getting back into balance that you can, so that you can show both love and truth to others. Stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed.